0: and tonight's title will be Christ and humanity as a whole W H O L E Christ and humanity as a whole certain theologians have put forth the theory that i think can be tested in the scripture when christ was incarnated he was he embodied all of humanity and so he took all of humanity through his downward and upward trajectory in Christ. All will be made alive. We're going to see if this pans out by a, a rigorous engagement with the texts. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. We'll read, start reading. And, and I think we hit a little bit of this last night. Galatians four one. Now what I'm saying, Paul says and this continues the analogy from common human affairs which he set in motion all the way back in 315 the last will and testament the heir the heir becoming as he explains further the heir is a minor before the fullness of time set by the father for his inheritance and this has many layers of meaning so what I am saying is that the whole time that the heir is a minor, he's no different from a slave. Bear in mind that when Jesus Christ took on humanity, became a human being, he took on the vocation of a slave. And as a slave, he became obedient to the Father's intention of love, to the extent of death by crucifixion, even though he is—and I use the turn of phrase by J. Lewis Martin, who I think has written probably the most definitive commentary on Galatians to this date— even though in prospect he says he is the Lord of all, we have at least an oblique reference here to the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his resurrection, Acts two thirty six, says that God made him both. Messiah and Lord. It's not a matter of believers making Christ Lord. God has made him Lord. God has declared him to be his eternal Son by resurrecting him from the dead. So that's what we do. Let's put it in reverse a little bit again, as we usually do. Now, what I'm saying <clears throat> is that the whole time that the heir is a minor, he is no different from a slave. Even though in prospect, he is the Lord of all. That is the Lord of the entire estate. He is under guardians and managers until the time appointed by his father. Please note that phrase because it becomes very Christocentric in verse 4. When the fullness of time came. God sent forth his son when the fullness of time came. This is all talking about at a time when the father appoints the heir to become the inheritor. He leaves the status of merely being a slave or at the same level of the slave, and he goes into the full inheritance. This is speaking of two, we could say, two Humanities is speaking of Christ individually, and it's speaking of all of mankind as a single unified monolithic whole and I think you're going to see that the theory of salvation history is not a Pauline theory as I'm going to explain it what I'm saying So this is called Better Call Paul. So we call Paul. What do you say, Paul? What I'm saying is that the whole time the heir is a minor, he is no different from a slave, even though in prospect he is Lord of all. He is under guardians and managers until the time set forth or the time appointed by his father. Please note the amazing connection here between Jesus Christ, the son, and heir of all things, as he's called in Hebrews 1-2 also. And the graced pagans, that's what I call the Galatians, that's what I call myself. I happen to be a pagan, a graced-out pagan. Some of you may be graced-out Jews, others may be graced-out Gentiles, but we're all graced-out in Christ, in the Beloved. So please note the connection here between Jesus Christ, who is called the Son and Heir of all things, and the graced pagans... Who have been baptized into Christ. And we saw that last night in 327. Baptized by the Spirit into Christ. Not baptized by a preacher into water. Baptized by God the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Where there is no antinomy between Jew and Gentile. Between slave and free. Between male and female. And we saw the echoes that came from Joel and Hosea that were determinative for our interpretation of Galatians three twenty six through 28. So it is with us, Paul says in verse 3. So it is with us. Now, when Paul says us, who's he talking about? Is he talking about us Jews or former Jews? Or is he talking about us, including the Galatians, the graced out pagans? Or is he saying us, meaning the whole of humanity? And I think there's a pretty strong argument that he's referring to us in a universally salvific, U.S., universally salvific way, as we will see. This is a very difficult doctrine to unfold. It's a flag that takes a long time to unfurl. Have you ever seen one of those? flag ceremonies at a funeral of a military serviceman you see that it's a very slow methodical solemn process the flag is unfurled unfolded and then folded extremely carefully then handed very respectfully and gratefully to the surviving wife or the surviving member of the family in its perfect triangle so with this this doctrine I'm unfurling now has to be done slowly. It has to be unfurled solemnly. And so I don't expect you to grasp the whole thing last night or tonight or in any of the near messages. But it will come to you by the Holy Spirit. So it is with us, Paul says. And that, I believe, is all of humankind as a whole. When we were minors, we were enslaved to the elements of the cosmos. Now, here's where we have to get a little interpretive. What are the elements of the cosmos? The Greek phrase is ta, which is a, an articular noun. So, it's ta, and that simply means that the noun is preceded by an article. Ta stoikia, st. O-I-C-H-E-I-A, stoichia, then to cosmo, or, yeah, cosmo, K-O-S-M-O-U, ta stoichia to cosmo, the elements of the cosmos. Now, we're going to see that cosmos here has a negative connotation, because you're not enslaved to the elements of something good. You're enslaved to something evil. Ta Stoikea tu cosmo. The elements, we could say the ingredients, the constituents, that which comprises the cosmos. Cosmos is equivalent to Aeon, where the word the word age is used. Cosmos and Aeon, they're synonyms. And Galatians one and four says that God's plan is a rescue plan, a, gr- a rescue mission. Christ died for our sins. That's already a traditional Christian gospel that Paul was handed down to Paul. But what is beyond that is what Paul says in the next phrase in Galatians one four: Christ died for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. That's something that wasn't found in tradition. That's something that is distinctly Pauline. That's something that is distinctly in the Pauline epistles. And elsewhere, only because it was revealed to Paul first. Cosmos is this evil age only contemplated from its spatial rather than temporal aspect. So it's the same thing. This world, as Jesus said in John 15, 19, I think he uses the word cosmos five times. Since you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out from the world, therefore the world hates you, and you're in the world, but you're not of the world. It's cosmos, cosmos, cosmos. And it's equivalent to aeon. Aeon has to do with the age, the evil age, in terms of its temporal, and because temporal, temporary aspect. And cosmos has to do with the same evil system, or the same evil age, only from the standpoint of more of a spatial element. Now, ta stoikia tu kosmu, or cosmu. stoikia is a word that is used in 2 Peter 3, 10-13. It's used in Colossians and other places. But I want to get to this because it's extremely important to interpret what this means. Stoichia means elemental substances. Among other meanings, it means elemental substances substances elements from which everything in the universe is made, for example, in Second Peter three ten to twelve. The Freiburg lexicon says defines Stoichia as basic material elements, and then cites Galatians four three and four nine as examples of that, that it means basic material elements. Then Freiberg defines cosmos as "quote morally, mankind as alienated from God, unredeemed and hostile to Him." So sometimes it's simply translated "world." First John five nineteen, we know that the whole world, cosmos, holos, the whole world, ho cosmos. Holas enteponero ketai is in the evil one or under the power of evil. Peter called it the corruption that is in the world through lust. But in connection with this, I find to interpret this passage or this little phrase ta stoicheia tu that First John two sixteen actually defines the contents of the cosmos this way. All that is in this world, that is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride or the pretension of life, bios life. And then John says, this is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Contents. Contents. So who was once enslaved to the elements of the world? And what are the elements of the cosmos? What are the elements of this evil age from which we are to be rescued? I would say that the elements of this cosmos are the same as the elements of this present evil age. And that is they are the flesh capital F-L-E-S-H, as a superhuman power. Sin, and as Paul uses sin, Paul's homardiology is not the same homardiology as other people. He, does, he speaks very rarely of the forgiveness of sins in the plural. And when he does, it's a wholesale thing. We have, re, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He simply says we have the forgiveness of sins in Ephesians one seven and Colossians 1.14. And he relates that to eschatological Israel, who God takes away ungodliness from Israel, and in the day that I forgive their sins, he's talking about our identity as the eschatological Israel whose sins are forgiven. And so he doesn't talk about An atomistic, A-T-O-M-I-S-T-I-C, an atomistic way of Christians running around, sin conscious, and doing little journals and recasting their day so they can name sins and rebound from them. That's not what Paul, Paul never teaches anything like that. Neither does John, in fact. We're going to have to iron that out a little bit in 1 John 1, 9 through 2, 2. When Paul uses the word hamartia, he uses it overwhelmingly in the singular, And he doesn't call it an infraction, he calls it a power under which the whole of humanity is enslaved and needs liberation from. What Paul is saying here is something shocking that the whole human race before Christ came was an heir but a slave. And after Christ came, the heirs of the whole world, of the whole universe, is the whole of the human race. But you know what has to happen? You've got to wake up to it. Each individual has to wake up. Wake, you sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Arise from the dead. You're either going to awake to this by the gospel that kindles your faith while you're in this body of death, or you're going to rise from the dead and have Christ shine on you. Ephesians 5.14, Paul put it that way. I know, see, this is going to take, I'm solemnly, quietly, unfurling. And then when it's all done, you hear 21 guns, seven guns, three times, because you'll see the triumph of God in Christ and the victory that he's given to us. And when I say us, I mean the whole of humanity. So the elements or constituents or ingredients of this cosmos are arguably the same as the elements of the present evil age, that being the flesh that wages war against the spirit in Galatians 5.17, sin itself, which passed into the whole of the human race through the one transgression of Adam, as Romans 5.12 teaches it. And death itself becomes a power in the hands of the God of this age. He has everybody under the fear of death and all other fears derived from the fear of death. But Jesus Christ defeated and deposed the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age. And the prince of this world is judged. And if judged there means acquitted, then... We've got some revolutionary interpreting to do in John 12 and John 16. But we'll put that off for now. Flesh, sin, and death are the constituents, the elements that we're enslaved to. So verse 3, so it is with us. When we were minors, we were enslaved to the elements of the cosmos. The elements of the cosmos are death itself, sin, and the flesh. Who... Are the us there then if not all of humankind it's not a history of salvation in which salvation becomes progressively revealed in history no the whole of the human race is seen under slavery then the whole of the human race is seen as an heir of all things and the difference and the distinction is made by the coming of Christ and that's why I think the original people that put the calendars out with A.D. understood this. Now it's, you've got to be secular. Everything has to be secular. So it has to be before the common era, B, C, E, and common era. I still like B, C, before Christ, and A, D, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. I still like that because I see history divided. And I see humankind's status distinguished by both sides of the coming of Christ. If you go by salvation history, you can only at best see a part of humanity saved. If you go by justification by faith and that theory, which is the old perspective on Paul, you end up with a small elect and a lot of other people going to hell. If you go with salvation history, you see a historical progression of salvation and you see a pretty good bulk of human beings being saved, but not everybody. But if you see beyond the old and the new perspective on Paul, you see Paul is a pretty much a universalist. That's one of the questions I've asked him. You know, I've got to call Paul about that. Are you, There's people that say, well, Paul is a distinctly a universalist. Others say, no, he isn't. So I'm asking, among other things, Paul, are you a universalist? And he will answer us in the form of ten letters, followed by three pastoral epistles, which we will get to at another time. So the stoicheia of the cosmos are not the elementary principles of this world. They are the elementary consistence or constituents or ingredients of this evil age itself the flesh and sin and we are enslaved to these elements in Adam all die because in Adam all are enslaved to these elements including the Torah as we will see the Torah under the Torah isn't just the enslavement of Jews by the law given at Sinai under the Torah is the under enslavement to the Torah and the curse of the law is the whole of the human race. We're talking about Christ and humanity as a whole here. That's beyond, that's what we might call a third way beyond the old and the new perspectives. And I'm sure there's something beyond that. That's why generations of pastors and teachers hand the gauntlet down they hand the mantle down as it were or they give the baton to the next generation so the elements of this cosmos are the same as the elements of the present evil age the flesh sin and death and also principalities and powers so it is from this present evil age that Christ was sent to rescue us that's where Paul goes beyond tradition Christ died for our sins Yes. Paul said, I received that by tradition in 1 Corinthians 15 3. The first thing that I received was handed down to me, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's unarguable. There's no arguing that. But what Paul then said in Galatians 1 4 is in order to rescue us from the present evil age, that's dynamic. That's the Pauline revelation. That's the dynamism. Of the Pauline gospel or the gospel of God about his son and that's what we're exploring and so to be rescued from this present evil age is to be liberated from the oppressive elements of this age including sin as a power that's why I would stand totally against the idea that Paul teaches about a character development in Christianity It isn't there's no character development there's freedom from the power of sin or there's being under the power of sin and trying to form your character under Adamic ontology and so we have people with character in Adam and we have people without character in Adam this is not nothing to do with Christianity Christianity is not the development of character it's a divine transformation through the renewing of the mind It's a divine action. It's God in you both willing and doing. It's not character development. Although the world might even be satisfied that your character develops by a transformation. But they usually hate the product of it because they hate Christ. So marvel not if the world hates you. It hated him first. So to be rescued from this present evil age is to be liberated from the oppressive elements of the age, namely sin, the flesh, death, and the Torah as having been hijacked by sin and therefore giving sin its strength. The strength of sin is in the Torah because the Torah has been hijacked by the flesh. The, what the law could not do in that it was weakened through the flesh, God did in sending his son. We could say the same thing about the spiritual life. What you can't do by adherence to any law, God does by sending his son. And the heart of the whole of the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, which is an apocalypse in itself, is 4-4. God sent his son. The heart of the gospel of John, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but so that through him the world would be saved wow who's he talking about saving here the whole of humanity and so we ask the question are the divine missions including the mission of the son which he was sent into the world to save the world are they successful i think we have to say yes these are all questions people have to answer. The burden is on the detractors of this gospel. It's not on me. This goes to our, now this idea goes to our everyday life and our everyday eschatological combat as people in Christ who are in but not of this evil age, this evil cosmos. This goes to, and that's where we're aiming, toward a directive and directions and guidance in everyday living in this world, but not of it in Christ, in the spirit and in eschatological apocalyptic combat, which we're supposed to be engaged in unless we're a wall. Most of Christendom, I think is pretty much absent without leave. So then, That includes me in a lot of times in my life, that's for sure. Once the whole of humanity was under those elements and enslaved to them, but now that Christ, otherwise known as faithfulness, when Christ came, God's faithfulness came. When Christ came and faithfulness has come, we are redeemed from the power of the law, which is one of the elements that make up the evil age. The heir who is only equivalent to the slave until he comes of age or until the time appointed by the father, as you go back to 315, you follow that thought. The heir, again, I'm going to say it, who is only equivalent to the slave in terms of his status until he comes of age is all of humanity in Paul's illustration. It's all of humanity considered an heir, but in the status of slavery under the elements of this age until Christ came. Now the prince of this world is judged. Now death is under his feet. Now death is defeated because he destroyed the one who had the power of death, even the devil. Now the flesh was put off in his crucifixion. You say, so That means the whole human race has been redeemed or freed in that sense, liberated, yeah. But what has to happen now is wake up, sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up to what's happened to you. Wake up to what's happened to the human race when Christ came, and especially when Christ raised from the dead. So it's not a matter of being justified by one day waking up and believing the gospel and therefore I'm justified by my personal faith as if it's a work. It's God revealing his son to us apocalyptically through the gospel at which time we wake up and realize that we have been liberated and freed from the elements of this cosmos and we can put off the old man and we can... Live to God. We can consider ourselves crucified, but alive to God. That's what Romans 6 is all about. So the heir, who is equivalent to the slave, until he comes of age, or until the time appointed by his father, is all of humanity. Kept under the elements of this cosmos until the father sent his son. There was a time that God the father determined and appointed where he would send his son. That's called Christmas. When Christ was incarnated. In fact therefore there is a layered intention here. Or what we might call if we wanted to turn a French phrase. A double entendre. Paul's intention to bring two, layered, uh, two layers of truth in one fell swoop here. The first is that the heir as equal to the slave is all of humanity. As a single monolithic entirety or as a uniform whole before Christ came. Now, salvation history, if you see that, if you read a lot of theology, you come up with that phrase. And I'm not going to define exactly what it is because I'm unfolding it here little by little. Salvation history, it seems, takes humanity in its progressive generations while Paul's gospel deals with humanity as a universal whole, and that's why he deals with Adam and with Christ as the two men that bear the destinies of all the human race. And Adam all die, and Christ all will be made alive. By the disobedience of Adam, all were made sinners or placed under the power of sin. But by the obedience of the second bearer of human destiny, all... We made righteous, all were given, justifying life. It's a matter of waking up to it. Even an atheist may one day hear the gospel and wake up to the fact that he is an heir of all things in Christ, and that will be quite transformative. In fact, all atheists will one day, or by the time this thing's all wrapped up. So Paul's gospel deals with humanity as a universal whole, and this is perhaps most evident when he deals with Adam and Christ as bearers of human destiny. You can read all about that in Romans 5, 12 to 21. We've already exegeted that, and 1 Corinthians 15, 19 to 49. The second layer, or the second half of the double entendre, is Christ. Christ is also shown to be... Equivalent to a slave for a certain time and he was obedient as a slave to the extent of death I am among you as one who serves he is the slave of Yahweh. He is the servant of Yahweh But by his resurrection, he inherits all things He's enthroned. He's elevated. He's enthroned So the second layer of the second half of this double entendre is Christ who is, of course, Lord of all. When Paul is making a little bit of a reference to that, when he says that the heir is Lord of all, he's, report, he's really pointing Christocentrically to Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. If he's Lord of all, that says a lot about what his salvific effect is. Because there are places in 1 Timothy where he's called the, the king of the ages, he is called the king or the Lord of the nations, and he's called the Lord of the living and the dead. And so Christ both died and came alive that he might be Lord of the living and the dead in, first, in Romans fourteen nine. So even Christ was equal to a slave and was obedient as a slave to the extent of death by crucifixion in Philippians 2, 8. But God raised him from the dead And demonstrated him to be the eternal son of God with power, as Romans 1.4 says, while also making him both Lord and Messiah in Acts 2.36. So in one sense, the making of him as both Lord and Messiah was an act performed by God by resurrecting him. So, again, in Acts 2.36, God made him Lord So the gospel that says you must make Christ Lord, we're not interested in making Christ Lord. He's already Lord. We're interested in making ourselves the conquered of him and the slaves of Christ. Paul didn't say Paul, someone who made Jesus Lord. He said Paul, a slave of the Lord, Jesus Christ. If Christianity was more concerned with making themselves slaves of the Lord rather than making Jesus the Lord... Why then there 'd be a lot of arrogance going out the window, right smashing right through the stained glass windows goes arrogance out into the streets. The Christ event effectively ended the dominance of the present evil age and ushered in the lordship of Jesus Christ over all. so as Jesus said in john sixteen eleven the prince of this world has been judged, the Holy Spirit in his universal mission persuades the world of sin because the world does not believe in me. That's the whole point. The world doesn't believe in him. It takes the spirit to ignite their faith. And that's what happens in the universal mission. And he says, he will speak of righteousness. He will persuade the world of righteousness because I go to my father. That's the upward trajectory that follows the downward trajectory. Because I go to my father, there's righteousness, there's deliverance, there's salvation that has been accomplished by me. And then he says, and of judgment. And that's where the hellfire preacher likes to come along and say, yes, he convinces and persuades the world of judgment. That's the final judgment. And Jesus said, no, because the prince of this world has been judged. When was the prince of this world judged? When Christ was judged on the cross. When Christ was judged on the cross, the world was acquitted. And one way to get the power away from evil is to transform the evil into good. And God's ultimate plan is to transform evil into the supreme good. Paul was was an evil man. He was a cruel, heartless persecutor. But he was transformed into not just something good, But he was transformed into one who said it's no longer I who live but Christ that evil man was transformed into the supreme good. So his punishment was a transformation by grace. That's his judgment. So when Jesus said the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected the righteous to or to those who have done the good. They will be to eternal life or to the life of the coming age. And those who have done evil to judgment, and that doesn't mean condemnation, that means acquittal. They will be raised to acquittal, where those who are acquitted already in this life will be raised to life. John 5, 28 and 29 doesn't separate the human race into damned and saved. It explores the entire human race and reveals the entire human race as part of God's salvific plan it seems that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them hmm so you want to hear about judgment the prince of this world is judged deposed that means he's thrown out of his position of authority and his position of authority means he enslaves humanity he's thrown out of his position of authority and over the creation at large the Holy Spirit persuades the world of judgment because of the prince of this world is judged, has been judged. The world, in fact, has been judged at Calvary. And Paul recognized this by saying, I will not glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world was crucified to me. And I was crucified to the world. Galatians 6.14, followed by The new creation in 615, followed by the climactic revelation of our identity, the Israel of God in 616. Followed by Paul saying, get off my back now. I bear in my body the scars of the Lord Jesus and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So that's it for Galatians. Let's go home. No, there's a lot more. If we take this judgment of the world now is the judgment of this world we could say now is the expunging of their crimes now is the acquittal of this world John 12:31 now is the acquittal of this world and yes it's true what Francois de Tois said in his book The Mirror Bible That in John 12, when Jesus said, I will draw all to myself, he did say, I will draw all judgment to myself. But I also showed that that can also mean, because the word elko is used, it means also to draw all mankind to myself and to draw all creation into myself. So both things are true. He drew all judgment, including the judgment on the prince of this world, to himself. That's why he's portrayed. And I think. Emery Persinger let me know this. Through a text one time. And it made me think. Why was Jesus. Symbolized by a serpent on a pole. Could that also indicate. That he bore the judgment. Of the serpent. And therefore if the prince of this world. Has been judged. Then this speaks of angelic redemption. But. I don't want to be bizarre. So if we take this judgment in John twelve thirty one to be acquittal, which at the same time removes the power of oppressive evil, then if the prince of this world is acquitted, then so is the world. This news may be too difficult to accept, I'm finding out. This news may be too difficult to accept, especially in our present time. On the grounds that it sounds, quote, too good to be true, close quote. And that's strange. That's a strange, cynical turn of phrase. Too good to be true means that for something to be true, it can't be good. Truth is pain. Truth is misery. Truth is, can't be good, ultimately. Yes, it can. I am the truth, Jesus said. He is the supreme good. It's, it is that good. The gospel is not too good to be true. It's true and it's very good news for everyone. Humanity as a whole became an heir and left its status as a slave when Christ came. And by that, I mean when the seven elements of his event, the event of Christ, was fulfilled, which we're seeing on Sunday mornings. We're rehashing those seven elements. Essentially, it's incarnation, then a life of vicarious obedience, a culmination of obedience in the death of the cross, crucifixion, therefore, then burial, then resurrection, then elevation, then enthronement. His elevation is universal because the scripture says he led captivity captive. Now, here it says that the whole world was captive. Under what? Sin, death, the elements of the cosmos. So when he rose and ascended, the scripture says he came down. That's the downward trajectory. He descended first. Then he ascended so that he could what? Fill up everything with himself. Fill up everything with himself. And then he goes back to Psalm 68 where the echo comes in that he leads captivity captive. But the way it says it there is especially the rebels. God rejoices in. And glories more in the justification of the most ungodly. And that's what makes this miracle of transformation so wonderful. And that's what makes Paul the guy. Paul's the guy to bring this message. Because he's not kidding about being the chief of sinners. You say, no, the worst sinner in history is Hitler or Stalin or Mao Zedong, if you know his history, he was evil through and through. Even though hippies carried his book around with them The Mao book. It's insanity. But if you look at Paul or Saul of Tarsus. If he had been allowed to fulfill his ambitions. He would have eradicated a community from this world. Called the body of Christ. Called the new creation. He would have eradicated the new creation. That's very bad a man who was intending that was transformed so that he would actually say it's no longer I that live but Christ lives in me that sounds like supreme good to me so Paul is an example that God takes evil and transforms it into the supreme good and that's that's just because he's God he's got that prerogative you know so as we wind down to a close here And don't forget the Times 2, the Tetelestai technological revolution, pioneered by our own Sherman, I mean Jim. He calls me Mr. Peabody sometimes, I call him Sherman, and uh, never mind. But the double speed will be out pretty soon, the double speed option will be yours, which means that you can listen to these messages and all the spaces are sucked out of it so that you can hear a 60-minute message and the voice. My voice doesn't sound like Alvin and the chipmunks. It sounds just like it sounds now, only all the air is sucked out of the spaces between the words so that you get a message that I usually may take 60 minutes, you can hear it in 30 minutes. And you, and you get hit so fast and so hard with the message that you comprehend it better than if you listen to the... I do. I comprehend it much better at the double speed. But that option is going to be available to us all very soon. And I think God has engineered it just for such a time as this when distractions multiply and when it seems like our schedules are unduly busy and they are unduly busy. I don't take these things to be, I don't take these things lightly. This is one of our links to life. This teaching of the word of God to me is a link to life. If I'm not in the word every day, I'm not really sensing my link to the divine life. So that's why I need the word. That's why I need it. And I understand that's why others need it. And that's what keeps people coming to church, not legalism, but desperation. (laughs) So, humanity as a whole became an heir and left its status as a slave when Christ came, and especially when he was raised from the dead. So it's a matter of waking up from sleep. The human race is asleep now. It's been lulled to sleep so that it doesn't see these truths. It's a matter of waking up from sleep to have this glory shine upon us, and that's the glory of Christ. And if human beings do not awake to this truth in this life, they will arise from the dead to it in the next life. And there may be even a stunning realization of it as they leave this life. And it may seem as they leave this life, uh uh-oh, what am I headed to now? And they will find that they are headed to first there's death, and then after that the judgment they will find from a God of love that they've been acquitted. Doesn't mean they don't approach the throne with all kinds of fear and trembling. I would. I have. I still do. And I told you about a young man, and it wasn't me, but it was somebody I know very intimately, a young man who had to own up to something he did and appear before a judge. And the lawyer said, he's going to be adjudicated and told him, you're going to be adjudicated by a judge. And he was thinking, oh no. And adjudication meant you're going before the judge to have your criminal act expunged and wiped out forever. So he approached that judge with fear and trembling and walked away in the greatest joy that he ever experienced and it turned his life around because this young man's father made him face the consequences of an action that turned him into a man. When parents do not allow their children to very, at first very gently experience the consequences of their actions or own up to them. They're creating social monsters or something worse than a social monster, a snowflake that needs a safe space, a safe space from what from someone who may give an opinion that's different from mine. I'll use the word pansies, but I got a better word for that generation, which I will not say pansies. In fact, pansies is not a good thing to say about pansies are a very strong and durable flower. You can't even kill them. So what do you call them? I guess you'd have to call them. uh, Never mind. I I can't do it. I just can't. The Holy Spirit is restraining, 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 restraining. Wow. Wow. That's how I feel the presence of God when he does this. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't say it. But I want to say it. That's when his presence is very real to me, almost like a human father saying, don't say it. So I'm not going to say it. The gospel of the glory of the Christ is veiled to those who have not had faith divinely kindled in them. That includes people that may say they believe the gospel, but it's one thing to believe the gospel, but it's quite another thing when the Holy Spirit kindles your faith and makes it a divine gift of faith, a gifted participation with Christ. That's when you start to see the things that you're seeing now. The glory of the Christ shines upon you. That means that The glory of the Christ in Habakkuk 2.14 is a glory that's going to fill the whole earth. That's a vision that the angels around the throne already see. The glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's not the devil's world. It's the Lord's earth. He's the Lord. The devil has been defeated, dethroned. So then, this gospel of the glory of the Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, is veiled, it's concealed to those who have not had faith divinely ignited in them. You know what Paul described as his transference into Christ? The one who said light, shine in darkness has shone in my heart. That's what happened. Like the old Hank Williams song, I saw the light. I saw the light. Why? Because the light of the glory of God that shines from the face of Jesus Christ shone into my dark heart and enlightened me. And it was the gospel of the glory of Christ which has been dawning on me now for about 45, 50 years. It's been dawning on me to the point where I see that glory now expanding into capture up the whole of the human race and all of creation. What a horizon. I expect to see that horizon after death, but I'm starting to see it before death. So are you. But that universal horizon is only appreciated. That breadth of the love of God is only appreciated in the measure that we appreciate the depth of the love of God at Calvary. I'm ready to wind this up. Once again, it's concealed. This glory is concealed from those who are lost in whom, in whose case, the God of this age has blinded their eyes. Like Saul, who had the kingdom removed from him, but still tried to kill David, so the prince of this world, who's had his power removed from him and his authority removed from him, still tries to kill the people of God. So we put on the full armor from God. We are like David. We're a step away from death. I view life that way. I view life... The only way to live life on the edge is to view your life as being a step away from death all the time. And that's what we are. We're at a step away from death all the time. But there's no way we're going to depart from this life unless God permits it and appoints that day. And so don't fear those who kill the body. Don't fear those who kill the body. You're going to see a lot more of them in action in our generation the year of the soft target. I called it that for more than one reason. I called it that because of a spiritual reason to make the gospel a soft target that we're going to understand clearly. But I also predicted in our New Year's message that this would be a year when evil would target soft targets. And that's when evil targets innocence for no reason at all. It's not real war, it's cowardice. But don't fear those who killed the body. Fear the one, rather, who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna, Jesus said about A.D. 70. And that's God who never takes the prerogative to destroy body and soul. But you fear him. In Isaiah 60 and verse 1, the verb anatello refers to the glory of the Lord rising and shining over Jerusalem. It's a glory that will also be resplendent throughout all the earth In Habakkuk 2.14, per the gospel of the glory of the Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5.4.4, make that. In Ephesians 5.14, Paul alludes to, or we hear the echo of Isaiah 60 in verse 1. And he identifies the glory of the Lord there with Christ himself. So what was predicted in Isaiah 60 in verse 1 has happened in Christ in Isaiah 60 verse 1 Ephesians 5:14 Paul accommodates the Hebrew text which commands to arise the Hebrew is kum q u m it's akin to the Greek term egero which means a word for resurrection from the dead so in Isaiah 60 in verse 1 He says, arise from the dead and the glory of the Lord will shine on you. Paul says to all the human race now after the Christ event, awake you sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The glory of the Christ whose glory will fill the whole of the earth will shine upon you. That's what's happening at Ted Church in this little building in New Kensington where the air is always unstable, if you've understood that, if you've seen the weather patterns over New Kent, the air is always unstable. There's atmospheric stuff going on. Christian combat is when you learn to walk through the unstable atmosphere of your time with peace and serenity, inner tranquility and divine strength. Paul also speaks emphatically to the addressees of his letter and indeed to all humankind in this age as those who are to awake from sleep and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The risen Christ shines on people who awake from the sleep induced by the present evil age and who arise from the dead in the sense of being liberated from the power of sin which is a present reality as well as, of course, a much more dramatic reality in the future. So for Paul, the day of salvation predicted through the prophets, for example, in Isaiah 49.8, is now. In a day of salvation, I will help you, God says in Isaiah nine eight, And then Paul says, today is that day, that day of salvation, in 2 Corinthians 6.2. So let's read the next few verses in, t- in laying tracks for where this is going to travel in the future. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time came, what does he mean by that? It's the time that the father determined that the slave, the enslaved human race as a whole, would become an heir through liberation from those enslaving elements. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the power of Torah, which means he experienced the grief and the oppressiveness of being under enslavement to the elements of the cosmos, even though he knew no sin in order to redeem, that means to deliver or to buy back those under the power of the law. He was born under the law to redeem those who are under the power of the law. And may I say to you today that that is all of humanity, not just the Jews. Because the Torah was hijacked by sin. And the sin took control of Torah. And the flesh took control of Torah. So the strength of, to- the, the strength of sin is in the law. And so we who are under the law doesn't just mean the Jews, it means everybody, including all of the human race, because all the human race is under sin, which hijacked the law. Now I'm gonna have to, I know I'm going to have to explain that. I don't see a lot of comprehension on the eyebrows of people here today, but I will see it. God sent it forth a son, born of a woman, born under the power of the law, in order to redeem those under the power of the law. That's all of humanity. In order that we would receive the full privilege of legal heirs, or the adoption as sons, if you want to put it that way, in Hebrews 2.9-13 and Romans 8.14-15. to 15. Along with Galatians three twenty six, with an echo of Hosea two one and Romans nine four, as distinct titles for eschatological Israel, and as we've been seeing Sunday morning, and this is how this gels together in in Galatians four three to five, I think J. Lewis Martin M. A. R. T. Y. N. made the most wonderful observation. He said that four three and five of Galatians is the center of the gospel of Paul. And at the heart of that center is 4-4 and the phrase, God sent his son. And from that son, which we have shown on Sunday morning, is the son of righteousness. He is the son of righteousness, will arise with healing in his wings or his rays or his beams. And if you put that together with Psalm, Malachi 4-1-2, with Psalm nineteen four, you have the son again, Coming forth and making a full circuit like a bridegroom from the bridal chamber rushing to meet his bride or like an athlete running to finish the course. The son of righteousness Jesus Christ makes a full circuit which means that by the end of the day nothing on earth escapes the rays the healing saving rays and beams of Jesus Christ whose face shone like a sun in its full noonday strength in Revelation one fifteen. So if I was going to teach Galatians again, I would begin not at the end like I did last time, or at the beginning like I did before. I would begin at the heart and show that this center, this sun of righteousness arising, casts its beams all the way back in the Old Testament to Genesis 1.1, where the scripture says, in Christ God made the heavens and the earth which is the last thing god does not the first where the end meets the beginning and his beams will cast forth all the way to the end of the new testament and his beams reach all the earth nothing says psalm 19:4 escapes or is concealed from the rays or the wings which is poetic for the rays of the sun of righteousness nothing escapes the salvific effect Of Jesus Christ. Nothing escapes the instauration. The universal effect of the cross of Christ. Nothing escapes it. And it was God's love. Wasn't it? God sent his son. Because of love. Consequently to redeem us means to redeem all of us from the cursing and enslaving power of the law. Listen to this. The wages of sin is death. Death. For everybody. But the gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is eternal life for everybody. You say, is that what that means? You wait and see. You'll find out. God sent his son because of love. He did this because he is love. So in closing, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. I've already done it another time. Might have even been on a Thursday. I don't know. But in connection with this, Ernst Kosumann who wrote a commentary on Romans, which I agree with about half of, but when he's good, he's really good. Page 138, Ernst Kosman, a pastor of coal miners for 10 years, then a theologian, a prisoner of war in World War II. He died, I believe, in 1998. He was the mentor of Jürgen Moltmann, as well as Lou Martin. He writes this on page 138 of his Romans commentary. God's love is more than an action which takes care of our deficiencies. It is almighty power which affects salvation, brings forth the creation out of nothing. That's creatio ex nihilo and puts an end to wrath. This almighty power produces and maintains eschatological justification. Page 138, same commentary Because for Paul, Christ's death has concretely manifested the love of God. The basis of Christian assurance lies in it. This is why the presence of the Spirit is described in verse Romans 5.5 as the presence of God's love. About which one can speak, according to Paul, only from the perspective of Jesus' passion. Then again on page 139, to be sure the death and resurrection of Jesus belong together. Nevertheless, they can be differentiated as in Romans 4.25 to clarify the two aspects of the event of salvation, namely the eschatological once and for all and the permanent. And then finally he says, the Christ who died for us also lives for us and destroys the threats of the future as he's destroyed the evil power Of the past. He is in person. The irreversible for us. Of God. Hence the change of destiny. In Romans 5 verses 12 to 21. So I would say this is not a matter of salvation history. But of the salvation of the whole of humanity. Once under the elements of the cosmos. Now liberated from them wake up thank you father for this opportunity we pray that you'll take the things that were taught through the imperfection of human teaching and make them perfect through the clarification of the holy spirit and we thank you for the privilege of offering a sacrifice of substance that